Hello and welcome to episode number 146 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, September 1st, 2014. Happy Labor Day. I hope you're all having a good, safe, and fun three-day weekend. The previous episode of the Agro Innovations podcast generated quite a bit of debate and controversy on the internet, much of which I cannot address on this episode of the podcast because I have quite a lot of content for you, and I think the content provided here is a nice complement to the previous episode in that it features someone who is offering some potential solutions to some of the economic challenges that the permaculture community faces. I'd like to thank Robert F. for a very generous donation, the first donation to the Agro Innovations podcast in quite a while. I very much appreciate that donation and uh, quite an excellent email that came along with it. So Robert, thank you very much for stepping up and supporting this listener-supported effort and conversation about sustainable agriculture, permaculture, holistic management, and many other topics that have been featured here on the Agro-Innovations podcast and will continue to be featured here. So let's go ahead and get into this week's interview with Marcin Jakubowski. This is the Agro-Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. On this episode of the podcast, we have another repeat guest, and this is a man who I think probably needs little introduction for this audience, Marcin Jakubowski of the Open Source Ecology Project. Welcome to the Agro-Innovations podcast. Thank you, Frank. I'm glad to be on. Well, you were on, I don't have in front of me the episode that you were on of the previous Agro-Innovations, but... I believe it was all the way back in 2008. So what is that, five, six years ago? In the meantime, we've had an economic catastrophe and a uh, slow recovery, if you would call it that, um, in the United States. And of course, many other events unfolding around the world and within the permaculture community. Yes, a number of things have evolved on our side since then. You can call five or six years ago the early days, and since then the main difference has been the TED Talk, which more or less put us on a world stage for our work on the Global Village construction set, which was, uh, I still feel like I'm recovering from that, actually. That was back in 2011. So tell us about the TED Talk, and tell us about what that experience was like, um, particularly in the aftermath of the TED Talk, and what happened for you um, once you got some uh, recognition from that TED Talk? Yeah, so the work that we've been doing was the Global Village construction set, the open source blueprints for the 50 different industrial machines that it takes to build a small civilization with modern comforts, an open source platform. Um, bringing that to TED was a great idea, a great event that happened because basically now just about anybody who hears about the project hears about it through the TED Talk. And what that meant is is that 
uh, just the, the increased level of visibility and validation um, was just simply great. So we're, we're quite a bit ahead of, <laughs> since the time. I mean, literally um, transforming from fund crowdfunding on the order of a thousand dollars a month to um, something on the order of a million bucks over the last couple of years, three years or so. Uh, so we've had a lot of chances to to have more impact and grow and learn. So I've been taking the crash course in organizational management and and product R&D, open source development, uh, people management, and all kinds of different things as we get our facility, factory farm here, built up, filled with more infrastructure. Take us from the early days of the last podcast to where we are now. Um, the main concept, I think, would be talking about how do we take this project to the global impact? How do we really scale? How do we make this replicable, uh, replicated? There's been about a dozen replications of our machines around the world, things like the tractor, the brick press, open source machines. Uh, But yet the project has not not gained the kind of viral spread that I was thinking would happen naturally. But uh, what I'm learning is that that takes much more dedicated effort, takes more time, more organization. And perhaps the main thing that makes it difficult is that we're trying to devise a kernel, so to say, of a new civilization, a, a set, not a bunch of individual machines, but a set that can work together to make drastic improvement for communities to, to build their own infrastructures, for people to start up enterprise, for people to accelerate innovation in general through open source hardware. Wow. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, mm. And we're going to get into, I'd like to get into as many aspects of this as possible. Um, Tell us where you are at. Let's start with the, at least the fun part for most of us, I think. The machines. Where are you at with your machines? Um, tell us the different levels of development mm-hmm. and field testing and mm-hmm. you know future plans for developing some of your machines. Let's put it into context. In 2012, we produced a Christmas gift to the world. Uh, that was actually 2011 Christmas. We produced the plans of the Civilization Starter Kit DVD version 0.01, where we published the open source tractor, brick press, salt pulverizer, power unit, in an early release stage recommended for replication only by hackers and makers, because obviously there's a lot of development that needs to happen. Now, since 2011, we've got a few more years, about two or three years under us, and uh, Right now, we've got the brick press, which is pretty much at a very well-developed state, uh, which we recommend definitely recommend for replication. Uh, there are still a little bit of things that we still want to perfect on this, but the complete blueprints are available in very detailed instructionals, but they still need to be published. We haven't published them yet. Uh, that was just the work from the summer after... Uh, making some of the final refinements. Um, that machine, so let's talk about the brick press itself. It's a machine that can produce up to 5,000 bricks in a single day, uh, 10 bricks per minute. It costs about 5K in materials right now um, to build from scratch, totally open source plans. It's fully automated. We provide the files for CNC cutting of the machine from from raw steel. We provide files for the controller, the electronics files, and files for cutting the controller case. 
Um, that is our main accomplishment. And, and when I think about that, it's like, okay, well, the machine ends up being, if you build yourself 5K, if we sell it, it's about 10K, about one-fifth of the nearest competitor. So it's like, why wouldn't that spread? Hmm, okay. So the thing is that it requires more in terms of people getting the confidence, other people using the machine. And pretty much as we've shown a few houses, like the micro house is being built with it, I don't think we have enough um, of a case to show this thing working seamlessly yet. I don't think people are seeing that yet. Um, as far as the tractor, that which is our second next closest, that is a machine that has a little bit of development. I mean, we learned a lot about it this year. We used it in the, in the construction of the micro house. Uh, last year, we've shown the first ever, so in, uh, winter of 2011, 2013, um, November or so, we've shown the first seamless operation of the tractor, the brick press, the power unit, and building the micro house. So that's the first time we used all the equipment together to build a micro house. We've dabbled with a lot of other prototypes, like we've, been, we've built CNC torch table, a trencher, a backhoe, a number of other machines. And we're borrowing others, such as the, the Delta RepRap as a machine that's ready for replication and because we're simply borrowing it from others that's out there already. Uh, there's a CNC laser cutter, the laser saw that we've built that's also ready to be replicated, but that's not our work. That's just borrowing from other open source projects. Uh, we had an initial partial prototype of the microcar and some other machines. But uh, that's, that's essentially where we are. One machine that's pretty much ready for prime time and ready to be taken to, a, to an economic model that works, and that is the workshop model where we have a swarm build of the machine. We've achieved a single-day build of the machine back in 2012. So our model now is organize a workshop, educate people, charge people for tuition, and sell a machine. So it's a dual revenue model. And we're trying to scale that and try to scale the project in general to economic sustainability by the workshop model. So I'll quit there and maybe have more of a discussion here. So are you suggesting that, and this is, this is where my mind goes, mm -hmm. the first thing to do, the first machine to build basically is the fab lab itself? That would be uh, the best if we can do that. We've produced only uh, a few of those machines, the early prototype of the uh, the CNC torch table. And we've built the iron worker machine, which punches holes and shears one-inch thick slabs of metal. But there's a number of other machines that we haven't simply prototyped. Uh, but yes, if you can, if, and if you want to start a sustainable production operation, you would need the open source tools to make that low cost and accessible and easily easy easy to fix. So in principle, we should have started the project building up all the fabrication infrastructure, but that's not how it went in practice because the first thing we did was build the, build the brick press because we needed housing, or we built the tractor because we needed it to build the housing or to do agriculture. So we pretty much did the dog fooding of our own needs as we developed the project. But yes, uh, the fab lab, the open source, flexible fabrication capacity would be a critical element. Uh, for anybody wanting to replicate, in fact, if a lot of people ask me about Africa, why don't you take us to Africa? I say, well, great, but if the, the things break down, we're lost. We can't make the parts. So unless we have the full fab lab, including the ability to melt metal and roll our own steel, um, we are not there yet. Well, this process 
has been an ongoing conversation amongst you and myself and many other people for almost 10 years now. And it feels like this is going a little slower than we had hoped. All, you know, no fault on all the people who are working so hard to make this happen. I can mm-hmm. definitely, as I hear you speak, see this vision that many of us had 10 years ago starting to come to fruition um, in all the things that you described. But again, it's happening maybe a little more slowly than we would have liked. Um, any comments on that? Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, there's two comments. One is the, is the discovery that to get an idea into execution requires a lot of skill and integrated perspective. Um, and that's, that's why I'm taking a crash course in many different things, like entrepreneurship and machine design and everything. It, it requires a lot of different skills. There's not a lot of people that, that, or the world, simply doesn't prepare us to do that, to be these entrepreneurial uh, renaissance people. Now, the second part is, so it's, so to begin with, it's a big, hairy, audacious goal, and uh, it can easily be conceptualized, and it has a lot of power to grab, to motivate people, but to execute on it is a difficult task. One of the difficulties is the big, hairy, audacious goal nature, and that particularly being the product ecology, that it's a set of 50 things that talk to each other. It's a set of uh, not 50 individual machines, but 50 that are interrelated in many ways through modularity, through similar components. So what we're trying to do, actually, I thought about this the other day, and it kind of clicked to me. It's so difficult and so slow because every machine that's designed is informed by the other developments in the set. So I cannot, yeah, how to say that? It's, it's that whenever I build something new, that information feeds back into the design of the other machines. So, so I had to get distracted and maybe... So a lot of people, for example, told me, oh, why don't you finish one thing and just move on? And yeah, it's a great idea. It's kind of like hard and arduous work because you can get much more entertained doing a lot of different things. But the thing is, there was a purpose to the, to the playing and prototyping of the many, many other things that we've built. And that is that, that, that feedback to the overall product ecology so that any new machine that enters the set will become much more integrated and the whole set will be easier to build like a life-size Lego set. And for someone, yeah, it's, it's hard to explain it because you have to get into the details of the technology. I mean, I can talk about that on the technical front, like how the things are similar and how they interoperate. But um, that's one of the main challenges. They're, they're related. You're not designing for one, you're designing for the 50. So you have to have the situational awareness of everything else that's going on in that. And I do say in retrospect that the, the, the uh, going out to build all the different machines is what creates any single one of them right now. And it's becoming more and more apparent uh, in the set as it becomes more like a life-size Lego set with uh, more common parts. I can uh, delve into that if you like. I think of, I listen to you talk and I think of my study of history of science in the United States And I immediately think of Thomas Edison, who is credited with inventing many, many important devices and inventions. But Mm -hmm. historians of technology recognize that Edison's greatest invention was a process for invention itself. Created his laboratories and brought many 
minds from physics and hands-on mm. tinker-like people and engineers and all different walks of life and locked mm-hmm. them in these well-furnished um, laboratories for months at a time, mm-hmm. and they created all these amazing products. And I'm wondering, to what extent are we rediscovering this Edisonian spirit and reinventing a method for invention um, more than anything, I mean, more than any individual machine that's coming out of this process, what if it's this process itself that that really is the thing we're rediscovering? And I think you nailed it because the 50 tools are our excuse for building a generalized open source product development pipeline. It's something I've talked about at the very beginning. And I know that to make it a reality, yes, you have to build in your full campus with support infrastructures and all the different tools like Edison did. In fact, just visited um, Edison's lab this last winter. My parents happen to live in West Orange, the same town. And I've been there before, but this time, and that was a long time ago, but before the Global Village construction set. But this time when I went, I was like, holy cow. This is exactly what he's trying to do in a different in the modern age right now. I mean, I saw the all his machine rooms and all that, the whole infrastructure for everything from the machine, the machining to the chemistry um, to the drafting, everything else. I think the model is similar. So we're trying to create a campus where such innovation can take place to really define a paradigm that can be scaled so that open source product development is the norm for society. So it's once again a very big audacious goal. But clearly, it's nothing short of that. And I think through all these years, as we build our facility and processes, that's what's happening. That's why it's going to take time. So, so yeah, the, uh, I'm day by day, I mean, I, I, I am more and more positive that this can be done, but also see the, all the challenges that the complex puzzle is big. Well, we are, all, the, we are all working together to try to crack this nut and make this happen. So, um it's really good to to have you back on the Agro Innovations podcast to to talk about this. Now, I want to get a little bit into. I, I think this theme of Thomas Edison is instructive um, because if you look at the economic model that Edison was operating under, it created an environment ripe for investment for him. First of all, uh, the modern corporation was not in its full existence quite yet. Um, and mm-hmm. they were operating under propri- proprietary patents, which you know we're trying to operate under an open source ethos. Mm-hmm. After Edison's, uh, you know, after Edison's generation moved on, these labs were basically subsumed by the military-industrial complex, and you know, staffed with physicists and engineers from Harvard and other prestigious universities around the country. All, all the resources were channeled in, in that direction at that point, and I guess a lot of the inventor-type folks were mostly left out in the cold or had to you know, step in line and get a job at GE or AT&T or Boeing or Lockheed Martin. So now we're in a situation where we don't have the capital finances that someone like Thomas Edison had during his lifetime what do you see are the economic structures that need to be in place to make to make this be feasible? We haven't solved that puzzle yet, but I think we have a great idea. 
And that is the simple workshop model. Uh, the bottom line of all this scaling is not going to be through foundations, which is um, not scalable, but through production. So the, the goal of our work is economically feasible technologies and processes, and that's how we'd like to show the proof that this stuff works. So for us in particular, that would be because we want to reskill people, retrain people, we want to combine education with the production. And the model that emerges from that is the production workshop combined with our techniques of extreme manufacturing, which means the ability to build any of these complex machines in a parallel swarm process in a single day. If you do that, you're able to create a community-based, social, educational, productive process that's fun and productive and has real economy built in. So imagine a model where you've got a flexible fabrication shop in communities, somewhat like community-supported manufacturing, where you can go in there and be guided to building your own stuff or workshops uh, or just a flexible way that the production is back, brought back to the community rather than in remote centralized locations by mutual aid labor. So the economics have to be the radical efficiency, good design, uh, brought about by open source collaboration and those plans being made available to communities and people generating real economics from that. As far as we've gotten, and we have tested a few of the workshops and done a lot of the number of the workshops on the brick press, the, the micro house in particular, um, that had a lot of learnings in them. Uh, I think we see a glimmer of good hope on the economic model actually working because, as I mentioned, the brick press we can sell for 10K. Uh, it costs us 5K in materials. So if we build one in a workshop in a matter of a day or a few, few days in an education setting, then we can clear that amount of cash from the profit of the sale, plus uh, we can charge for tuition, kind of like the permaculture design course model. Um, and make these things happen. So that's the avenue we're exploring right now. We don't have the answer, but I, I can see this this kind of model scaling because it can produce real goods and, and meet real needs. So one of the things that I have been talking about quite a lot on my podcast and on my blog is this notion of economies of scale. And I think this is something that you understand intuitively and have applied uh, throughout mm-hmm. the course of your career um, one of the first things that you did when you were building your machines and just getting started was recruit people to come and help you. And mm-hmm. you, I guess, immediately realized that if you were going to be the Lone Ranger out there in Missouri and try to build all these machines yourself, you weren't going to get very far. Talk about mm-hmm. the importance and the value of having a strategy for having some economy of scale in a permaculture type operation um, where people can be more specialized and you can lower your fixed cost per output? Uh, economies of scale, how do we do that? Um, for us, when we talk about economy of scale, the first thing, I don't know if this is what you're asking, but the first thing that comes to mind is the difference of, of the flex fab model versus centralized production. Centralized production will produce millions or thousands of something. We will produce one or several, but in a really rapid, effective way by various features of the design and sourcing process and build process. 
we have shown that. So I look at it as if we if each facility as such can be able to despecialize and produce many different things, then we can have economic success. So the economic economics of scale come from many such productive facilities being available everywhere, operating successfully everywhere, as opposed to a few, few facilities in a centralized model. I've been asked, okay, if you produce the brick press, well, well, how, just how many brick presses does the world want? Because I think, oh, well, we can sell a bit of a few of them. But what happens if we saturate the market? Well, the good thing about the flex, flexible fabrication model is that, okay, for one, we can not only produce the brick press in the same facility, but we can produce a microcar, a 3D printer, any other machine, that, um, a machine that makes metal to create metal from scrap, uh, produce various uh, myriad goods. And if you design your facility to do that, you can have, a, you could achieve in, in principle economic success. That's that's the model we're, we're proving out. And that's where the product ecologies, the, the flexible, very flexible, specialized, flexibly specialized machinery um, takes takes part. Uh, there's a great book on this topic. I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but it's uh, still a classic to me. It's called The Second Industrial Divide. It talks exactly about the model of flexible fabrication compared to centralization. Uh, studied by some MIT people, uh, Michael J.P.R., the author, has shown that the the feature of the centralized economy is just a historical fact that has happened. It's, it hasn't happened because it's the, the optimal or most efficient case. And it's for historical reasons that the centralization happened. But the flexible model, which is based on more generalized machinery and more skilled labor, is totally feasible. So that's that's the this theoretical work that shows alternative models are possible. And they're very interesting because you would think that with the miniaturization of technology, the ability to to have amazing productive technological power under you, that has come down to a very small scale where a small microfactory can produce what mega factories of yesterday could do. Now we have access to CNC machining and all, all kinds of good technology that can literally free us, but also make our productive life more interesting because um, the tools themselves could be more user-friendly and they could be more when they're more general, you have to be more trained. In, in some ways, the tools train you because you're not de-skilled anymore. You're not a little cog. You're you're a capable, diversified producer. So it's a whole social ecology and productive ecology that can be uh, made as a case for the flexible model. And I think it can scale because ultimately people are hungry for, for productivity. And a lot of this alienation in today's society, I think, is from people have been having to remove from the land or the, from the fundamental productive activity, and people have that wired deep in them. So I think it's a deep need that people have, and I, and I can see a future where, at the very, very least, people participate much more in their productive, uh, in the products that they use. And at the very best, everyone can make anything by themselves. <laughs> they don't need demand to produce as, as they become truly autonomous people, uh, which revolves around the, the concept of I mean, autonomy, um, I think about that a lot, and I think that 
true freedom, the deepest kind of freedom comes from our own individual ability to turn those abundant resources around us into things that free us from material constraints. Material constraints still being one of the dominant political forces on this planet. And everyone tries to make a living. They're not following their dreams, but they got to put bread on the table. It's, it's still uh, a persistent case for humanity, which you would think advanced technology would, would free you from, but it hasn't yet. I see a change on that forthcoming. So, but doesn't this, the pace and scale of this revolution, isn't, isn't what's tempering it the tremendous misallocation of resources? I mean, I don't see, uh, or very sparingly, like cooperative extension offices or land-grant universities invar- involved in things like FarmHack or the Open Source Ecology Project. I, I don't see it from the universities. I see it sparingly from the nonprofits. Um, so, and then, you know, when we look at the enormous amount of money that gets invested in military technologies and homeland security and these other things, um, we see this tremendous misallocation of resources and a very capital-starved open source and permaculture community. Um, does this ultimately come down to political power and who has it? Sure. I mean, right now we are not enjoying the open source economy. Yet. So you can say all the funding is doing great work in exactly the wrong things. I mean, that's it's kind of being radical about it, but what I mean by that is as long as we continue to develop things that are proprietary and we don't allow others to build upon that, we are short-circuiting our ability to, to innovate faster. So my hope is that the open source economy, when, that, when the idea of simple collaboration takes hold, we are going to accelerate innovation cycles and blow the present economy out of the water. Uh, but definitely the politics today, will, I mean, everything there is, is rigged to be proprietary. Um, we definitely have little support right now, but, but of course the hope is in the good old fight of good versus evil that um, the winner, well, I mean, the winner will have to show, show themselves as, as a method that, that actually produces one. And the open source community hasn't produced, uh, I wouldn't say it has produced spectacular results yet. I mean, the concept is there that we can collaborate and build upon each other's work. But show me excellent cases of, of open source enterprises that have totally uh, succeeded. There are very few. And of course, we have the MicroBot story on the other side. Um, but uh, the open source movement hardware it's so young and small. It's it's uh, it's about um, hundred million dollars in terms of total revenue for an, an entire globe. So that's like fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So it's not it's not big, but I think there is a power. I mean, if we can truly develop the power of open collaboration and accelerated innovation, then then many more people will notice. And I think a lot of people are noticing the collaborative power. Um, and it will come down to good examples of open source enterprise dominating certain areas. And that's um, my vision for open source ecology. It's, um, I clearly see a point when our technology will, will compete and be better than industry standards, in which case the viral replication can happen. But that requires a lot of resource. So, I mean, 
You know, people ask me, well, you've been working on this tractor for so long. Where is it? Um, well, it's getting there, and we don't have the multi-billion dollar budgets of a John Deere. So, I mean, it, it will take time. It will take effort to do it. You were in a documentary film not that long ago. I have not seen the movie, unfortunately, yet, but I have seen the trailer. Tell us about the film. Tell us about your experiences making the film and then what those experiences have led you to now. The film is forthcoming in about two months. It's been a long time in production. I just got an email today that uh, it's it's near release. So that, that hasn't come out yet. Um, it was a great story um, in terms of meetings. Uh, the highlight of it was meeting some of the people from the R Street or Blair Grocery Project, so Matt Turner from that project. We connected well. Um, we actually built a tractor for them down there that they're using in their operations in the urban gardening. That was great. I visited down there and saw it in action and, and got them going there. Um, it's a great story of, of different two different projects that are working hard to make their visions come true. Um, I think that uh, we have a long way to go in terms of making that vision come true. But it, the thing that, that's important to keep in mind is the success comes from work. When you don't give up, you just go at it, keep going. Um, and there's that's how any innovation happens. Is you just got to keep going at it. Where when somebody says you can't do this, you say you can, and then you show it after trying enough times. And I think, uh, of course, being the ever-optimist, I... I see there's, there's going to be a threshold for open source ecology in terms of its technology becoming mature enough that it, it does spread to its potential. And um, I'm thinking a lot about how to make that happen. And with the book press, we have to show the first complete case of that actually happening. Early in the conversation, you mentioned that you are having to learn a number of new skills as your project becomes more well-known and as your success grows. And a lot of those skills don't focus as much around machines or engineering or technical skills, but more around people skills, entrepreneurial skills, organizational skills. Tell us about your realization that these are maybe some of the most important skills that this movement needs, and tell us um, some of the things, some of the most critical skills and traits that a successful leader in this movement needs. Yeah, so entrepreneurship crash course is definitely uh, one of the things. Uh, at some point, it, the concept here turned from talking about grand visions to the economic model that makes them real. Because at the end of the day, the what you're doing will have to have economic power or it will fade. It will not, not happen because it takes too much energy, too much effort. So the dollars do make some um, some indication of what can actually happen, what's feasible. So, um, yeah, the the biggest skill that a person like myself needs is is management, and that is of people, of relationships, of contracts. Uh, primarily, understanding what people's capabilities are. That's the thing that I messed up a lot on in terms of expecting unrealistic results from people. It's, it's always killed me. I think I'm finally getting through that. But um, 
as a you know as a high performer, it's, I expect the same of everybody. Um, when people don't have the same kind of drive, I mean, personally, I don't have, I don't believe I have special skills. I just work hard. Um, I think that anything is attainable by one truly understanding the reason why they're doing it. That's why, you know, for example, learning how to build machines, which I didn't have experience with before this, that was, I had a fire to learn that. And when you have fire underneath you, you learn it fast. How do you know who you're working with, what they're capable of, what they can deliver? For me, so I would also like to talk about, uh, in terms of what really needs to happen for us, it's still, still about structure and processes and organization that's a vehicle for the whole development thing to happen. Like Edison's lab, it has to have a whole ecology of all the different processes from finances to, to R&D. That's something we're still struggling with and uh, looking for people to help us. So the way we're moving forward is trying to scale the model of the production workshop. So we'd like to invite people to collaborate with us on that part where if, if you're doing development on this project, let's talk about how that actually gets out into the public, how, how there's a model for economics behind it. So that part about understanding uh, what's economically significant, what makes sense, how, I mean, the strategy for what's, you know, the, the business sense to see what can actually sell, what can make an impact. I mean, for me, a lot of that, I think, is covered by the fact that we're, we're meeting, we're, we've simply selected by design some of the most essential uh, tools of civilization, so they do have markets. But then the question is, you know, everything around it, from marketing or publicity to the, the very technology. So it's a complex, it's a complex game. Um, definitely have been through the crash course. And the main thing that summarizes in, in, in a few words is learning the distinction between vision and execution. And that's the mark of somebody who can actually change the world versus be a dreamer. You are currently working on a, I guess you've called it a micro house or some type of housing mm -hmm. project yeah. that you wanted to talk about today. Tell us about yeah. that project. Right. So micro house is a small house made out of the compressed earth bricks. It's a proof of concept that we can use all our tools, primarily the brick press, the tractor, pulverizer, power unit, seamlessly to, uh, to build a small house. Our goal with that is to build a small house. Um, we've built the micro house that I live in right now. It's about 200 square feet. Uh, but we built that in the workshop. And we continuously have held workshops around this. We have micro house one, two, and three by now. We're going on to micro house four, where our hallmark for it is to show amazing swarm build. Now we're looking for a population of about 36 or so people to participate in the workshop. We actually had about 50 participants in the one, one that was the last one. We found that without proper procedures being defined, without the thorough redesign for swarming, no matter how many people you have, you, you still won't get the job completed. So the next focus will be in this next microhouse number four to show what, what we've learned through the last processes as far as how we can build a wall, the entire wall, 
up to the bomb beam in a single day and put the roof on in the second day. So really rapid um, parallel workflow, including brick, brick floors, um, but pretty much taking the standard processes and revisiting everything so that you can have a fun, productive learning experience with a lot of people. So that workshop is actually coming up September 26th. We haven't publicized that. We're going to do the formal announcement by this Friday. But uh, we encourage people to sign up, learn about, uh, get experience on some of the equipment, open source equipment. We're going to press some bricks during the event. Uh, you'll get familiar with, uh, we'll discuss a lot of the design principles of how we do this, how we do our so-called extreme manufacturing workshops, extreme production workshops where we focus on swarm builds uh, using modular design. That's the kind of model we're, we're trying to promote. But that's coming up right now. We just got the foundation um, gravel in place for that, um, making all the preparations for that. And we're going to do this as an experimental workshop and focus on a concept of how we get a lot of people involved in the design process itself up to the making of instructionals. So we're going to hold a number of design sprints, which are remote collaborative events where a number of people can take on different parts of the instructionals production to get every single step of this build process, refine it, beat it up and down until we are satisfied it can be done in the short time frame that we're allowing for it. So that, that's a lot of innovation in terms of the build process itself uh, to create a regular process, well, to, to convert a regular building process to compress it by a factor of 30 or so using a swarm basically to reinvent the modern-day modern, uh, modern day barn raising of sorts using open source open source collaboration, open source equipment. The, the bricks come right from our site here. Um, so that's um, it's a highly sustainable feature of the build. And we're trying to see if there's a real economic model behind it. Can we actually build these houses at a fraction? And we're, we're aiming for one-third of commercial costs for a full house um, that's fully code compliant. So that's, that's one of the products we're trying to develop. Now, um, we also invite others to collaborate with us on that. Uh, when we started, I mean, the microhouse was not really one of the uh, products of the 50 Global Village construction set items, the brick presses, but we feel that, okay, if we're using the brick press, we need to show the products that the brick press can produce, and that's the house. So that's a culmination of the tractor and brick press working together. Um, but that's where we are right now. It will be an exciting time where we show some unprecedented velocities while people have fun at it. And trying to always optimize, make it better, just learn from the, the previous lessons from the last workshops. So when is this workshop, and how can people find out more about it? So September 26th, Friday. It's a little over four weeks now. But to find out more about it, you can go to our website, which is opensourceecology.org. And the announcement is to follow us on Facebook as Open Source Ecology. On Facebook, we post all the announcements there. Then our main website, opensourceecology.org, will have all the workshops. Uh, which will be posted this Friday. Mm -hmm. So you are, can you give people a sense of where you are in the country? So usually people don't want to have to travel too far to go to something like this. We are in scenic Maysville, Missouri, in the middle of nowhere of Missouri, about an hour away from Kansas City. So pretty much the geographical center of the United States here, Kansas City area. Excellent. And I know there are people uh, from that part of the country who listen to this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so if you are interested in joining, 
them to build a house in a day with a swarm of people. Sounds like fun. Um, 30 people, one house in one day. How about uh, 30 houses in a month? Yeah, not one day for this time. Uh, it will be a four-day workshop, but first day is all the walls, second day the roof, third is the interior and exterior, the fourth day finishing work, and the fifth day we hope to, uh, we will force ourselves to have an education review and discussion day. Is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners of this podcast? Um, I think I would say the, the only thing for start scaling the project, I encourage people to look at what we have, evaluate it, and we'd love to talk to people who are interested in co-organizing workshops as a means to develop the technologies and, and get involved. And we'd like to take pick, pick off from all the open source work that's been done out there. So if you've got a workshop that works for you, Let's discuss how we can integrate it with the work of open source ecology. If there's opportunities that we can work together on workshops, which are education and production at the same time. So I'd like to see how we can push that model together. Well, Martin Yakubowski, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing for your perseverance and for your commitment to the open source ethos. And thank you for joining me today on the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you very much, Frank. And I think we're getting to the start line of this entire game. There's been a lot of lessons. I think we're ready to get started. Well, that sounds exciting. I am right there with you and am eager to see some of this work unfold. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That concludes my interview with Open Source Ecology Project Leader, Marcin Yakubowski. If you are interested in attending the Micro House Workshop, that'll be from September 25th through the 30th in Missouri, just a little bit outside of the Kansas City area, as Marchin said. So I would encourage you to check that out. And I was just on their webpage just a, moment, a few moments ago. And they have different options. You can take a one-day, a two-day, or you can do all five days So that sounds like a really excellent opportunity. I will post a link to that in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. If you would like to follow the example of this week's show sponsor, Robert F., and donate to the Agro Innovations podcast, you can do so by going to agroinnovations.com and clicking on the PayPal donate button on the right-hand side of the page. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>